I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. Marion County is a relatively small county in Texas. It's a total population, somewhere around 10,000 people. When people think about Texas, they think about longhorn cattle and desert and cactus and all this stuff. This region of Texas, you know, we have trees, we have hardwoods, we have pine trees, uh, lakes and hills, and it's typical to Alabama, Georgia, that type of terrain. I've been the sheriff of Marion County, Texas, seven and a half years. You never know who's going to be living next door to you or who you're going to be dealing with. And uh, it amazes me, some of the people that turn up. I wonder, how'd you find Marion County? What attracted you here? 911, what's your emergency? I'm running my trash route over here behind One-Eyed Jack's liquor store. Okay. And there's a house on fire back here. There's a man sitting in a blue Jaguar watching it burn. Okay. I asked him if that was his home burning, and he said yes. Then I asked him if he wanted to move further away from the fire, and he said he wasn't worried about the fire. He said he was worried about the bullets that were going to fly. Okay, we'll send someone right out. My name is Chuck Rogers. I've been a police officer for, this is my 27th year. I'm the criminal investigator for Marion County Sheriff's Office in Jefferson, Texas. Well, on this particular night, it was uh, early Monday morning, July 8th, 2013. It was about 1.55 a.m. I was a patrol deputy, and uh, my responsibilities were, you know, patrol the entire county. And I was in an area of Lake of the Pines, which is here in northeast Texas. I had been through this area maybe... Uh, no more than 15 minutes before this call came out. Marion County 2, 508. 508, be advised, we have a structure fire between, I mean, behind One Eyed Jacks on FM 729. As I was heading west towards the call, I could see a very large glow. When I pulled up at One Eye Jack's, which was an old abandoned liquor store, I could see the building fully engulfed. It was a structure. It was the house that was behind the store. You could feel the heat. And um, there was already a couple of firemen on scene. I'm Denzel Walter Messman, Jr. Well, 2013, I was fire chief. 
Well, when I pulled up on the scene, I found the house totally engulfed with hot fire. After I set up the trucks, I noticed a blue Jaguar with a gentleman slumped over facing the house, which I thought he'd passed out. I seen him when I first pulled in. He had no shirt, his pants was, was blue jeans, and they was unzipped. Also, he had a brown socks and no shoes. And when I went over to get him to move, I noticed that when I tried to wake him, I, I found that he had no pulse whatsoever. In his right hand, he had an automatic handgun and blood over his chest, over his heart. That stays with you. You, it's, you think it's a movie, but it's not. It's real life. If I'm going to tell you this story, July 8th, 2013 seems as good a place to start as any. Without the light Or oh, the darkness comes Hold oh, through the night mm, The shadows will run mm, Fend off the enemy Sing out the jubilee With all the fire we can breathe My name is Jackie Taylor And this is Relative Unknown After receiving the radio call from dispatch Officer Chuck Rogers arrives on the scene and turns on his body mic. You couldn't pull up a little bit for me, could you? Yeah. As Rogers gets out of his squad car, Fire Chief Denzel Walter Messman Jr. is there, and he points to the blue Jaguar. All four windows are down, and as they walk over, Messman aims his flashlight at the shirtless man sitting in the driver's seat. Looks like you might have shot Okay. The EMT that was here has already checked him, right? Huh? The EMT that just left has already... Yeah, he checked where Paul's... Okay. Okay. Was the vehicle just sitting here when y'all got here? Yeah. Okay. Right quick, Chief. Chief, do you know this guy? Did he live here? I don't don't have have any idea. Okay. Officer Rogers then makes a phone call to his boss, the Sheriff of Marion County, Texas, David McKnight. There's a structure fire. I have one eye jacks, and I hit it out here. Uh, pulled up in front of the store. It was a uh, somewhere around 2:30 that I got a phone call from Deputy Chuck Rogers, and he said that he was initially called to a house fire. He went up there. The fire chief walked up and said, "This guy over here is not breathing." There was a man that had apparently shot himself in the head. His arms resting on the arm, rests a tad bit. The pistol sitting kind of on his lap there, still in his hand. There's an obvious exit wound at the back of the head. There's blood behind the driver's seat. It looks like it's dripped down the seat and onto the floorboard. Looks like there's a spent shell casing like by the back seat. I don't know who he is yet. We've run the tag. They haven't given me a return yet. Uh, After he told me that, well, I immediately... Started getting up and get dressed. Okay, thanks, Chief. I knew I had to go to the scene. 
Sheriff McKnight begins the hour-long drive from his house and radios for assistance. One county. Go ahead, 501. Back at the scene, Officer Rogers is told who the man in the blue Jaguar is. Do you know this guy? Yep. What's his name? Paul Dome. Paul Dome. See if you can find anything on a Paul Dome. D-O-M-E. Have y'all ever seen him with anyone? A female? Paul Dome is the man's name. Rogers is told that Dome is married to a woman named Vivian, and they live together in the burning house, along with Vivian's son, Ed. As Officer Rogers takes photos of the body, Chief Messman and his team are fighting the fire. The house fire is about one of the worst fires you can get into. It's, it's because it goes up so fast. There's so many different chemicals involved between the furniture, the curtains, the plastics, and everything, and it burns hotter. It's like taking a match and putting it into a matchbox. Once that wood catches, it's gone. We spent about four hours out there to get it down where we can get close enough to start really working it. And that's when I noticed that one of my other firemen threw his hands up and backed off quick. He said, wait a minute, there's a body in here. Sir, there's a guy that shot himself, and uh, they're thinking the guy's married, but nobody can locate his wife. They just found somebody. Y'all did? Okay, they're saying they did find a body here at the house, so that's that, that's what they just come and told me. So, as the fireman got my attention, uh, of course I took my flashlight over because he was still trying to wet the fire down. As I went over, he was pointing to me what he thought he saw. And so as he's fighting the fire, I'm taking my flashlight and uh, trying to look and make sense of what we're looking at. And there's something right in there I want to look at if we can. Well, shoot, now we can't see it. Oh. Uh, oh. Uh, all right, hold up. This particular point just looked like a, a charred lump of, of meat. Uh, I hate to describe it that way, but uh, like you may do a brisket or something, it just, it's just a charred lump of meat. And we were uh, 100% certain we were seeing a, a large bone, possibly a leg bone. By this point, Sheriff McKnight had arrived and began coordinating what was now a crime scene. I talked to Deputy Rogers I got the fireman to go over and show me where he saw the remains. It was still dark, still a tremendous amount of smoke. It was a very hot fire, it was totally engulfed. And we just shining the flashlight over. We could see that it just looked like a burnt part of a leg or possibly arm bone. And there was a small amount of flesh still left on it. But it was bigger than say a house dog or some kind of dog, is fairly sure it was human remains. Immediately we got the fire trucks to bring over and concentrate their efforts on this area and try to cool this area where it would reach a point where we could actually get in there and see what we had. The human remains were on the western side of the house. And the crew that was on the eastern side just trying to mop up and 
get the fire completely out. They came over and said they thought they had found more human remains. And went over and saw the skull. And then I really thought, you know, I don't have one burnt person, I got two burnt people. This kind of stuff is not easy to, to work. It's not easy to digest. We normally will average a homicide a year. And six months after I went into office to get into a double murder suicide, it was, it kind of, I got initiated really quick. And I'm, I'm, I'll be completely honest, I was overwhelmed by this. calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. <laughs> and now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. A tip from a trash collector leads investigators to three bodies at a home in Marion County. The trash collector was making his rounds at about 2 o'clock this morning when he noticed a house on fire on FM 729 near Lake of the Pines. CBS 19's Field Sutton joins us live from that house tonight and Field, that investigation is still going on tonight. Justin and Jillian, uh, Texas Rangers, Marion County Sheriff's Department and firefighters are all still out here tonight. They're making a detailed map of exactly what happened this morning. And looking on back at the house, you can see how incredibly just, just destroyed that it was. And just in the last hour, we can tell you that they took away the two bodies that were found inside. There was also a man dead of a gunshot wound in a car outside. The theory investigators are working with is that man killed his wife and stepson and then killed himself. And Field, did the sheriff have anything to say about how the mother and son died inside the house? I mean, do we know whether they were dead before the fire started? You know, we don't know yet. The biggest challenge here is going to be that those two bodies were so thoroughly burned in the fire. The hope is that an autopsy can bring some answers, but unfortunately, there are no guarantees. One thing that's really important is, say, if you walk up and you have a burnt body, you say a couple of leg bones, a couple of arm bones, and a skull. You say, well, that's enough. We know it's a dead body. Well, it don't work like that. Once we pick up the pieces that are big enough to bag, well, then the rest of the surrounding area, ashes, we actually sift. We have screens made out of progressively smaller screen wire. It all has to be processed. The reason you can have something as big as a quarter and have a bullet hole in it, they give you a cause of death. As Sheriff McKnight was gathering evidence, Officer Rogers went looking for witnesses. Go see if anybody's home. Get him! 
Vivian Dome owned the house and the property it sat on. And she and Paul had rented out lots for people to live on in their travel trailers. At the time, only one other lot was occupied. Vernon Browder, let me just knock on his door. Vernon Browder had his trailer in the back corner of the property, about 100 yards from the fire. Well, up here, there's a lot of allergies, so my nose is running real bad. So I took some NyQuil, which makes me sleep real deeply. I don't wake up. So when I heard the pounding on my door about daylight, I got up. And I was still half asleep. Couldn't understand why the deputy sheriff kept asking me all kinds of questions, but wasn't telling me anything. They had every law enforcement agency there was. ATF, Texas Rangers was out here. Highway Patrol was out here. So I kept looking at the house, and it was foggy and smoky. And finally, I noticed the house was burned down. That's when I got shocked. Paul was very good to me. He was always asking me if anything he could do for me. And I was always looking for ways to make life easier for him because he was always in pain with his leg. And he tried to take pain pills and whatever, but they didn't help. But he was always in pain. He was just like an old country boy. And I guess I was close to Paul as just about anybody was. But, you know, he had his secrets. So I didn't go back in his background. He didn't go back into mine. But I thought the world of Paul and Vivian both, so they were always good to me. Paul was 73 years old and tattooed with long hair. Vivian was 85 years old frail and legally blind. And Vern says when Vivian's son, Ed, 61 years old, got sick with brain cancer, Vivian asked Paul if Ed could live with them so she could take care of him. He was taking his chemotherapy or whatever. He was very pale. He didn't have no hair. He wasn't able to really walk, so he was carried in. And he stayed in bed, and Vivian took care of him. He was supposed to not have survived more than a month, but he kept getting better because Vivian was a nurse and she took care of him. Paul, well, he was griping because he was getting better (laughs) instead of worse. But still, he couldn't do much on his own. So he had to depend on Paul for anything. You got to remember old people like that, they like their comforts. And the stepson was like an intrusion in on the family. But I have never seen that man do anything wrong. Fern says it wasn't until the morning of July 4th that he noticed something strange. Well, during the day, the dog was never out by himself. But I noticed the dog was out running around. I didn't think much of it. But then the dog was sleeping under my trailer. So I went to check to make sure that uh, he had plenty of dog food out. And there was a sign that Paul had put on the screen door that he was in Louisiana, would be back in three days. 
But Vern didn't know that the Domes had made plans to stay local. They'd been invited to their friends, the Wisniewskis, for a cookout. And when the Domes didn't show up, Don Wisniewski tried to call Vivian. I wasn't getting any answer. And it wasn't like Vivian not to, you know, return a call if you left a message. And I felt compelled to go over there and see what's up. I walked up to the sliding door. That's the door that we always went in and out of. And the curtains were pulled and there was a note on the door that said, gone to Louisiana. I thought that that was really strange because we had made arrangements. I knocked on the door and nobody answered. I didn't hear the dog bark either. So there was a side door that led into the kitchen. I opened the door and I just stuck my head in and I said, anybody here? Before I entered the kitchen, I could see Paul sitting in the chair in the living room and he looked very uncomfortable. I said, Paul, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm all right. I I just don't feel very good. And I said, do you want me to come in? Can I come in and, and, you know, see if you're okay? He goes, no, no, I'll be all right. And I said, well, did Vivian go somewhere? He goes, yeah, she's not here. So I said, okay. I said, "If, if you're all right, I'll leave. And he goes, yep, that'd be fine. I turned and closed the door, and when I got in my car, I literally felt the hair on the back of my neck just stand up. She sensed something was wrong, but what Dawn didn't realize was that had she come through the kitchen on the other side of the wall, she may have tripped over Ed's body. Or if she'd walked through Paul's workshop, she would have tripped over Vivian's body because Paul Dome had shot them both to death. Then he sat in the house with them in the Texas heat for more than three days. And in the early morning hours of July 8th, he set the house on fire and watched it burn. And then after warning the garbage man about bullets flying, Dome shot himself in the head. If y'all see anything else where y'all over here, just let me know if you don't mind. Later that morning, a man who lived down the road and said he was a friend of Paul Dome's was trying to get Sheriff McKnight's attention. While we were processing the scene, there's a, a guy that kept walking around the edge of the crime scene. Two or three times he came inside the tape, and I went out and told him, you know, you're going to have to get outside the tape. To be honest with you, I didn't pay a lot of attention to him. I was busy, and he just struck me as being a rubbernecker that wanted to get up there and see what's going on. And I finally told him about the third time that he came in, I'm trying to be nice to you, but if you come back again inside this crime scene tape, we're going to file charges on you. 
And so he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, well, the hell we all, I'm trying to tell you, you need to look in that other motorhome. First thing that struck my mind, oh, hell, we got more bodies out there. And so we went out there, I got one of the deputies to go out there with me in case there was somebody in there, you know, still alive. It's old, dilapidated motorhome and the weeds and stuff growing up around it. So we went in it and uh, we saw this real dark colored, just old wooden steamer type trunk. And I was still thinking, we're gonna find more bones or bodies. And we opened it, it wasn't locked. It, it had the hasp on it, but it wasn't locked. And we started finding all kinds of Hell's Angel paraphernalia. I mean, covers and patches and gloves and jewelry and just tons of stuff. So I started looking at it and the name Clarence Crouch or Butch Crouch came up. In addition to the Hell's Angels patches, the steamer trunk was filled with photos, letters, and stacks of law enforcement documents. There were hundreds of newspaper articles about the Hells Angels and high-profile criminal trials. And the central character in these trials was a man named Clarence Butch Crouch. McKnight took the steamer trunk to the Marion County Sheriff's Department and began sifting through it. We came back and had this trunk, and this trunk was a tremendous attention grabber for everybody. And so we were going through the stuff that's in the trunk, and it's very interesting. I found a letter that evidently Paul Dome had, when he turned 65, he tried to establish Medicare. According to the letter, the leg pain that Vern Browder mentioned had become unbearable to Paul Dome, and he didn't have health insurance. So he applied for Medicare. And then Medicare sent him back a letter stating that his social security number wasn't associated with anybody and it didn't register in their system. So Paul Dome sent them another letter, this time with a different social security number and a different name, Clarence Crouch. So I took the social security number and went over to our dispatch communication center and got the dispatcher to run the social security number and see who it came back to. What came back is subject unknown or contact a certain phone number. Well, in about 30 minutes, somebody called me from the Justice Department. Where in the hell did you get this number? Why are you running it through the criminal justice system? And so I told him kind of what we had going on, and the ball started rolling in. As McKnight continued the conversation, he learned that the Department of Justice oversees the Witness Protection Program and they'll neither confirm nor deny the identity of a protected witness. But even without being officially told so, McKnight figured that Clarence Crouch and Paul Dome were the same person. So I told him, we may have one of your snitches down there. And three or four days later, uh, Deputy U.S. Marshal, they came down, and uh, the U.S. Marshals wanted all the Hells Angel paraphernalia that had identified Paul Dome is actually being Clarence Crouch. I'm thinking the reason they probably asked for it is even with him deceased, they wanted to protect the identity of this witness protection person. They didn't want this to get out of the public or the media. Federal authorities have a tremendous amount of power as it pertains to federal law. But they have 
limited amount of power and when it comes to state law, and this is a state case. Our district attorney consulted with the Justice Department, and it was determined that this evidence was no value to them. So McKnight kept the trunk in the patrol room at the station. It was hard to ignore, especially one item sitting at the bottom. There was a manuscript in there, a big, thick manuscript that was, you could tell it was the makings of a book. It was written with an old typewriter, and the 478 single-space pages were all yellowed and bound together with string. On the cover page was a three-word title, Hate and Discontent. Everything in the trunk was interesting, but the manuscript was by far the most interesting thing to me. And I wished I, I couldn't preserve it ethically because I didn't want to get into a tampering with evidence situation. But I, I wished I had arranged to, you know, to keep some time so when I had time I could sit down and read it. But every time I came from dispatch to the office, I'd stop and pick it up and read another few pages and it'd suck you right in. It's hard to put down. Word spread quickly that Paul Dome was really a former Hells Angel turned government witness named Clarence Butch Crouch. It was about four or five days after the incident. I was in the office, and a gentleman came in. He was 70, 75 years old and uh, lived in Arkansas. And he was pretty long-haired, gray-haired, tatted up pretty good, and he introduced himself. And he told me that he was a Hells Angel. He said, I still am. I'm not active. But he was telling me, you know, he had heard about what we had going on. I said, well, I can't really discuss a whole lot of it with you. And he said, well, they take a really dim view, any of the, what they call their colors, patch, or whatever, that it's in the possession of anybody except the Hell's Angel. And he said, normally when, when they had somebody died or even when they got put in jail, that was their deal that some club member came and collected the covers and took them back with him. He wanted to know if he could have the covers. I said, no, you can't. And he, he didn't he didn't really raise up much of a ruckus over He was a nice guy. I, I visited with him 30, 40 minutes. I would really have enjoyed sitting there with him and hear some of his old stories, but I thought... <laughs> Probably in my best interest not to get too deep into that at, at that time. Before the Hells Angel left, he told Sheriff McKnight one last thing. He made a remark to me that uh, Butch, Clarence Crouch, is known by Butch. This guy said, I'm not really afraid of anything, but I was afraid of him. Said he was one bad dude, I'll tell you. By this point, You've probably wondered why I'm the person telling you this story. Well, Butch Crouch, also known as Paul Dome, was my father. Without the light, or the darkness come. I didn't know my father very well, but the decisions he made almost 40 years ago left a huge hole in my life. And I've been hiding from my story in the past until now. This is Relative Unknown. Hold through the night mm, The shadows will run Coming this season. I cut down a shotgun. We pulled up and stopped and the machine gun opened up and I started shooting. I saw the knife thrown 
And then I fired a shot at him. When he said he was in the Hell's Angels, I was like, holy shit, what the hell did I got myself into? He was giving up details of this crime and details of how she was buried that only somebody that was there would have known about. What could bring somebody to the point that they would roll like this for no reason at all? I have no love for any of these snitches because they're all scumbags, but the family members are pure victims. I didn't sign any papers. I didn't agree to any of this. And that's my ongoing fight, and I'm not going to stop until everything is rectified within the Witness Protection Program. Butch, why did you join the Hells Angels? I joined because of a brotherhood. We would all stay together, and we would all, our kids would be Hells Angels, and, you know, it was something that we'd all grow old and be proud of. Relative Unknown is a creation and presentation of C-13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, and Rumor, Inc., Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, David Balinson, Michael Galinsky, and Suki Holly. Written, produced, directed, and edited by Zach Levitt. Produced and edited by Perry Kroll. Our theme song is Change on the Rise by Avi Kaplan. Original music composed by Joel Goodman. Mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz. Production support by Ian Mont and Lloyd Lockridge. Field recording by Rich Berner, Michael Galinsky, Perry Kroll, and Connor Waddingham. Production engineering and coordination by Sean Cherry and Terrence Malingone. Artwork, marketing, and PR by Kurt Courtney, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. I'm Jackie Taylor, and thanks for listening to Relative Unknown. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.